Hey folks, thanks for clicking or tapping on this 17th episode of Concessions. This is a special one in a few ways. It was recorded back in April 2023 when Dan and I were taking steps to really get our bearings on the podcast. This is the first episode where we begin by chatting a bit about other movies, books, games, etc. that we took in other than the main event of the week. That was Dan's idea uh, that he pitched to me literally seconds before the recording begins. It was a good idea, and I always look forward to checking in with Dan on that stuff before we get to the meat of the matter. It's a good warm-up that provides a lot of our best banter and I think makes the show better overall. This is also the first episode we're publishing that really holds true to the original concessions concept. That is, picking a movie to watch that one of us enjoys and the other dislikes, talking through why it is we like it or dislike it, and then literally making concessions to the other person's point of view. In this case, we're concluding a quick one-two punch of Ethan Hawke movies and talking about Paul Schrader's First Reformed from 2017, a weighty, thrilling film with one of the all-time great performances by one of the all-time great actors, and a film that I absolutely hate but probably not for the reasons you're thinking. I hope you'll listen to the episode and then clap back as to why I'm wrong. You can do that by finding me at threads at Jared Concessions. Dan is over on X at Dan Concedes. If you like the podcast, please don't forget to hit the follow button and give us a rating. And also don't forget to tune in next week where Dan and I and our good friend Jackson Brown dive pretty deep on Mike Judge's office space. That is also a special episode uh, for one specific reason that I won't spoil for you here, but I'll let Dan tell you all about before we get into that movie next week. But for now, let's get into this. Please enjoy Dan and I duking it out over Paul Schrader's 2017 critical darling, First Reformed. You start. You do the welcome to concessions. I'm Dan. Thing. Welcome and, uh, to a very special episode of Concessions. I'm Dan, and I'm Jared. And today we're going to drink Pepto Bismol old fashions. Mm. But before we get to that, the snack uh, that smiles back. I want to let's let's uh, let's start our our new segment uh, this this week. Before we get into our film of the week. What else have you taken in this week, Dan? Like, what have you, uh, what have you seen or heard or, you know, smelled or otherwise sensed in this past week that uh, that's sticking with you? What sensory joys have I experienced in the last, well, two weeks in this case? We've taken uh, a little week of rest and relaxation. Uh, but one that, like, actually, yeah, we can only nominate one for right now. Just one thing. We're going to pick one thing? All right. Yeah, one one favorite thing from the last time that we talked. Yeah. So my my most recent favorite thing has to be I did not know that Walk Hard, the Dewey Cox story, is absolutely <laughs> hilarious. Um, I had oh, always yeah. had it pegged kind of in that space of like your stepbrothers, your anchormans, your uh, hangover movies. It's kind of all the bro comedies from the 2000s, which are fine. Like I like them, uh, but it was it was like kind of like okay, I, I know this shtick so i'm not going to put it on 
Um, I've seen, I thought I had seen this kind of movie, you know, dozens of times before. Uh, and then I put it on. I'm like, this is tremendous. And especially now that we are in a flood, like a glut of music biopics, biopics. Um, it's, it's the movie we sorely need right now as a people. Yeah, absolutely. If you like Walk Hard, the Dewey Cox story, uh, my recommendation to you is to watch Weird, the Al Yankovic story, as they mm. are close brethren, compatriots. They are they are compadres. The best thing that I watched this week is most definitely season four, episode three of Suck Session. I, I've been saying that ever since uh, Guillermo from uh, Jimmy Kimmel Live interviewed Brian Cox and he was trying to pronounce succession and he was like, succession, succession, succession. And Brian Cox is like, no, friend, it's it's succession. Like it's like a session of suck, a suck <laughs> session. Yeah, I've been saying that ever since. Yeah, I'm going to go just straight hyperbolic with this. Um, I, cause I, I was, I've, the first time I watched this episode, I was thinking, wow, that might be the best episode of like of dramatic television I've ever seen. It's like at least one of them. Like I, I can't really point at any other episode of a drama and be like, that is for sure better. But I will say this even more so than that, this episode of succession pushed the style of naturalism in drama further along than anything since Marlon Brando and streetcar. Oh, yeah, it's it's the closest analog to real life that I've ever seen in a story. Huh. Like it, uh, it takes this one very universal experience and kind of chips away at it more truthfully than than anything I've seen. And it, it's an experience that is universal. It's not like you know universal for white people or universal for men or no, it's like truly a human, a universal human thing and mm -hmm. succession just nails it. And it's something that uh, probably like one out of every like two or three movies or books or TV shows attempts. Yeah. Succession just fucking did it. Crazy. Yeah, I wish I liked succession succession. Um, yeah, you do. You just haven't watched it yet. I watched like four episodes and then just stopped. You got to not stop next time. <laughs> Have you considered um, not doing that? Yeah, um, yeah, it's so good. I'm gonna watch it again uh, and again. Made me miss my old acting school days. Mm. Before we get into our film, and actually, this will be a good, uh, very good segue into our film. What are you drinking, Dan? I purposely went to my local uh, bodega and got a nice, fresh glass of bullet bourbon. It's got. It's in my nice crystal glass that is passed down from my grandfather. Uh, it's got a big ice cube. Uh, it's very tasty and it will make me, it goes very well with Pepto-Bismol or for the more discerning palate, a little Drano. Yeah, or uh, have you considered putting it into a cereal bowl and sopping it up with bread and eating it for breakfast? Well, no, because see, that's too much carbs. Not for our hero in today's movie. Uh, I, too, am sipping on whiskey, and I've gone lower brow than the bullet. Um, I have this adorable little can of oh, peanut butter screwball. This is a $5. It's two shots of screwball in a can. Do you like for screwball? For $5. No, I just don't want to <laughs> buy more than one serving of whiskey. Yeah. 
and you know it's sweet like it's it's more of a cocktail really with when you add the peanut butter to it so anyway i'm gonna sip on that but i also in the spirit of this movie uh i also have a beer <laughs> uh this is an alaskan amber oh that's and, a good one um yeah if i didn't you know put at least a small hole in my liver while discussing first reformed uh did we really discuss first Reformed? we are we are method podcasters here <laughs> yeah yeah uh ethan hawk probably not not he's not really a method actor he's like one of these uh intellectual um uda hagen you know break down my like do the dramaturgy and break down the script beat by beat by beat and take a bunch of notes and just know everything that he's doing and everything his character might do uh, but we're going method tonight, motherfuckers. <laughs> we're going Jeremy Armstrong in Succession. Uh, I'm gonna, I can't can't stop thinking about Succession. Um, <laughs> all right. So first reformed. You know, I don't think this movie needs much of an introduction. If you're listening to such a podcast, you were probably very excited about this movie about six years ago. Mm-hmm. Written directed by Paul Schrader, who uh, at the start of his career was much more famous for writing things like Taxi Driver, Raging Bull, The Last Temptation of Christ, Bringing Out the Dead, and then some movies that weren't directed by Martin Scorsese as well. But this is uh, probably his best known uh, you know, film as writer and director. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong there, but I'm pretty sure this is kind of the coup de grace as far as like Schrader the auteur. Uh, stars Ethan Hawke uh, in a very central role. It's like very much a movie where the lead role is the lead role. This is not an ensemble piece. This is a character piece about Ethan Hawke's character. But the supporting cast is Amanda Seyfried, Cedric the Entertainer, Victoria Hill, and Michael Gaston. And that's really those are really the only speaking characters. Oh, there's also excuse me. There's there's Bill Hogue as kind of the church elder and organ player, who. Uh, puts a lot of recyclables into a landfill in this movie. (laughs) A lovingly crafted sequence where this man carries his bottles and cans out to the trash can and throws them into the garbage. Yeah. So so should I uh, hop in and do a quick old vague recap or setup? Yeah, yeah. Talk to us about the uh, the the plot of First Reformed, and you know, spoilers ahead. If you haven't seen First Reformed, why would you be listening to this? Yeah, you had six ahead. years to do it. Sorry about it. Yeah. no one's that busy. But yeah, you have uh, the character uh, played by Ethan Hawke. Uh, his name is Pastor Ernst Toller, and he is a uh, he's a pastor of like a cute little uh, church, like very New England looking, like the little steeple. It's all it's built like in colonial times, and you know, there's not. He's very traditional, or the church ceremony is very traditional, and as a result, it's kind of not too many people are going to it. It's you know, you you rarely ever see more than. 10 people, if that, even in the congregation. So he's just being a pastor up there, chilling, doing his thing. And um, the inciting incident is that one of the, uh, there's a couple that goes to the church and they're pregnant. And the uh, father is a climate activist um, and definitely a very active one, gets in a little bit of trouble in the law from time to time for what he's doing. And um, he basically, he's told his wife that he doesn't want to bring the child into the world because of his understanding of what the climate's going to be or the world's going to be like during this child's life. So it it's, I would say the inciting incident is uh, 
Ethan Hawke's character talking to this man and this man explaining very uh, rationally, uh, kind of with little uh, emotional appeal, uh, essentially saying, I can't, I know all science is pointing that the world is going to look like this and I cannot justify bringing a child into the world knowing this. I think he says something along the line of like, when when she turned 17, she points at us and says like, you knew this was going to happen, yet you like, yet you brought me into this world anyways, how could you? That's like, that seems to be the thing for him that's like, I can't, I can't overcome that. And so this sort of, in a way, like activates uh, Ethan Hawke's character. I, I want to call him by the character's name. Hold on. Uh, Pastor Toller. Pastor Toller. Pastor Toller. Sort of activates him and he starts learning more about climate catastrophe. He starts learning more about the community that he lives in and uh, what hand that they're playing in actively uh, degrading the environment. Um and also um, some of the church's role in it, not maybe directly in causing the, uh, the disaster of the climate, but maybe sort of giving ideological cover for them, some endorsement of what uh, the direct actors are doing. And so he starts uh, kind of uh, rubbing people the wrong way in the town. Oh, also important to know, he has some, uh, I think it's, is it officially called stomach cancer or colon cancer? Um, or is it just cancer? Uh, he has cancer of some or more than one part of his digestive tract. Yeah. We don't know exactly what, but he has some sort of digestive cancer. Basically, and the, you know, as far as the story is concerned, it's just so in, talk, clock's ticking on him. He's he's deteriorating fast. His health is going down. Um, yeah. On top of that, he has a drinking problem. Severe um, alcoholism. Yeah, he really <laughs> a drinking problem. Was... He he has a drinking <laughs> disease. Yeah. Um, so basically he's just in full death drive, like self annihilation uh, mode. It's also important to point out that he was a military chaplain mm, and mm -hmm, his mm -hmm. son followed in his footsteps and enlisted in the military, went to Iraq and died. Um, so his 18 year old son died, you know, probably just within a few years of the movie starting. And that of course ended his marriage as well. So he's just rock bottom from every angle and then yeah like you said like he unlocks this fixation on climate change and his own position as a pastor and how that makes him a steward over you know the lord's creation planet earth and uh he finds a suicide vest in the garage of his parishioner and um without the movie saying it directly uh, we kind of enter into this, will he or won't he use his suicide vest to basically commit a terrorist attack against his church, which is housing uh, the local uh, major polluter. Um, the, and the, the governor. And the governor who, who enables the owner of this like textile factory with just insane amounts of carbon emissions. And, and the pastor of, there's a local, essentially a mega, I wouldn't call it a full mega church, but it's definitely like... In comparison to First Reformed, it's a mega church for sure. Yeah, yeah, they, they own the First Reformed church. If yeah, I would say if like the First Reformed church is like an old classical song, then the bigger church is a sugary pop song. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, so those those three figures are all in there, and yeah, you see him get uh, really take steps towards uh, arming the vest, putting it on, and getting ready to blow them all sky high for what's a 250th uh, 
like anniversary of the church, which I actually thought, I don't know if it's purposeful or not, it's about the same age as the US. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, we're, we're about to hit the, the 250th anniversary of the US, what, like three years from now? Um, yeah. And so, yeah, I mean, this this church is, uh, you know, a few years older than the United States. Which, I, I mean, yeah. I don't know if that's a coincidence or he's trying to put in symbolism there. But uh, yeah. anyways, um, so that's th those are like the major swaths. There was a few minor plot points and spoilers that I didn't chuck in there that we might um, we'll touch we'll, on them. We'll cover from time to time. Um, but I think I'm trying to think of the, the best first way to... Well, oh, yeah. well, what's your history with this one? Yeah, well, since you picked it, Dan, why don't you you speak in? Mm. Yes, I am I, as the sponsor of this uh, this film. Let me sip on some ice cold bourbon. Ah, that's it. Brought to you by Bullet Bourbon. Put a bullet in your mouth today. Um, we. So my history with this is I saw it after. Uh, I didn't see it in theaters, and I saw it probably about a year after it came out, and it it, it, it was one of those movies that like was being talked about. Like, it, this is definitely one of those movies. I, I kind of call it a, a podcasting movie or a YouTube movie, where it's definitely got a lot of like video essay breakdowns and a lot of uh, you know people who like to talk about film. This thing is so rich, especially since it's a Paul Schrader film, so it's going to attract those kind of eyes, anyways. And it is just rife for the analysis. Um, so I watched it. Yeah, it must have been twenty nineteen. 18 or 19 but yeah this was a movie that stuck with me really hard that really got under my skin um and because it, it poses very pertinent questions of what it means living or being alive today in like such a challenging manner uh more than just like hey everyone let's recycle and lower your carbon footprint and uh you should uh, not use the plastic straws save the turtles uh this one is Maybe mm -hmm. we need to blow some motherfuckers up. That might need to be what happens. Uh, what do you guys think, huh? And the movie provides no answers. I'm gonna, I'm gonna strongly disagree, but we'll get to that and then some. <laughs> well, I guess, and I'm saying for me, that's what because uh, right, I do agree. Right, right. I think ultimately I'll come down that this, even though this movie has a lot of politics in it, I don't think politics is the first thing on its mind. I think it's spirituality first. Yes, um, definitely. But, me watching it, that's what the, the main confrontation uh, was where, you know, it's it's um, the, the problem that anyone who just has a basic understanding of how climate change works, what is going to happen, like what's going to happen if we keep going in this course, what it means to get off that course and our uh, participation or culpability within it. And I think this movie explores those in very confronting ways. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, okay, so I encountered this movie in May of 2017, about a month before its theatrical release, when it was doing the festival rounds. So every year I try to go to the Seattle International Film Festival and see as many movies as I can. Um, First Reformed was definitely like one of the hot tickets that year. That, and, and not in, you know, uh, not in like a small way by the fact that Ethan Hawke was there attending the film festival through it with a celebration of his career and a movie that he wrote and directed was also premiering that year as along with his major kind of star vehicle from that year first reformed. So I saw that at the SIF cinema Egyptian with Ethan Hawke, maybe like 30, 40 feet away from me. And, um, 
wow, I hated th th this movie <laughs> then, and I hate it even more now. And we'll get all the way into it. But uh, I think it was like the fourth movie I saw that day. And for the last like six years, I've been giving it kind of the benefit of the doubt. Like, oh, maybe I was just tired. Like I saw a lot of really good movies that day. Maybe I was just, you know, this was the one I liked the least of the bunch. Um, I think I saw like 20 movies that week at least. And this was just one of them. But uh, yeah, I, I hated it a lot. My friend that went with me hated it even more than I did. And um I haven't watched it in six years, so I was like actually pretty excited to go and give it, uh, you know, a way, you know, more of its just due by not seeing it in this like really kind of high, uh, high energy, uh, you know, fast paced festival format. Uh, so watching it at home, deep watching it, taking notes, you know, reading about the movie, watching video essays, et cetera, et cetera. And I, yeah, I dislike it even more now that I've really <laughs> had more time to let it sink in. A detractor. Wow. You might be the yeah. only person that I know that has like an outwardly negative opinion of first. Well, movie. here's the thing. Like I, I think that this movie is, I don't think you can argue with the fact that this is a really, really well-made movie. It's exciting. Like it's tension is really palpable. Uh, a lot of people, including Schrader himself refer to this movie as slow, but I don't, find this movie very slow I, I think this movie is a thriller and the tension is palpable the performances are remarkable across the board it looks very good the way that the movie is blocked and shot is just perfect this is like a very top tier you know it's like top tier craft in this movie i hate this movie on a far deeper level yeah, you well, and we can get into it, and um, there there are points I agree on. Yeah, it's it's uh, the ending or the ultimate message about because that's what I'm saying is why I love about it so much is the questions it's proposing and the way that it's asking the questions. Uh, but I do agree that I almost like just pretend that the answer that the movie gives doesn't exist because <laughs> it's a stupid <laughs> one. Well. Okay, so we have to spoil kind of how this movie ends, and a, a lot like the few detractors that this movie has has they usually fixate on the ending because the end the movie Schrader uses this old trick where we're shown a fuse burning towards a catalyst event. So like we know that Pastor Toller has the motivation and the means to commit a pretty atrocious terrorist attack. And we spend the whole movie watching him get deeper and deeper and deeper into despair and deeper and deeper and deeper into admitting to himself that he is going to carry it out. So we have this like really central, you know, plot device that is lends itself very much to suspense and the tension of like, will he or won't he do it? And then the movie ends kind of abruptly uh, in a way that for a lot of people is ambiguous of what he does. Does he go through with it? Does he just kill himself? Does he just not do any of it? And does he just actually just kind of transcend spiritually and kind of let love back into his life? That's what I think he does is I think literally what we see him do at the end, which is decide not to kill himself, decide not to blow up the church. He gives a, he gives a personal mea culpa by physically harming himself but then he stops short of killing himself and he, he makes out with Amanda Seyfried. <laughs> uh, he makes out with Mary. It's very important that her name's Mary. And uh, a lot of people kind of feel that that's anticlimactic. It's needlessly ambiguous. I, I'm actually pretty okay with that. Like I'm, 
I don't really need the bomb to go off at the end of the suspense bit for me to feel satisfied. And the fact that it doesn't go off gives us a lot to chew on anyway. Um, for me, it's it's really the simple fact that like he the movie, the whole movie sort of abandons any sort of call to action around mm -hmm. climate activism in favor of just being a a very focused meditation on transcendentalism. Right. Like it's it is way more just about this one man shedding all of his responsibilities to society, to institutions, to the people around him, to his past, and just existing for love and fulfillment and spiritual ascension, right? And uh, to me, it's like, why even make the movie about climate change if ultimately your thesis is, you know what, the world's fucked. There's nothing we can do about it. Let's just, uh, you know, focus on our spiritual selves. I just, I call it bullshit. I yeah, it's, it. Well, it's, it's ultimately deeply nihilistic. Um, and actually this movie, uh, I think you're correct in, in that, uh, how they kind of betray the, the values of the movie. Uh, like, uh, the, the themes that are being explored, he kind of double, he says like, ah, LOL, never mind. And also that's good. Um, because there, there is an interesting tone to take on this where the same things happen, but then the movie shows a way how um, he's just kind of falling back in line or he's, he's going back to the role where he was at the beginning as sort of this useful, not idiot, um, but this kind of ornamental thing that they can tuck away in the back corner. And he's kind of like, he's kind of okay with that. He's like at peace with it now. Um, yeah, yeah. Where, um, and, and it kind of goes into a critique, actually, of uh, going all the way back to famous first uh, sad boy, Frederick Nietzsche. Um, he, in developing the idea of nihilism, so, you know, God is dead, nothing, like, there's no inherent value to anything. It's nihilism in two sentences. Uh, that he actually charges uh, modern Christianity with actually being nihilistic for similar reasons to what you're levying against Schrader in this movie is that Christianity doesn't seek to create heaven on earth. It just says this earth doesn't matter. Let's just love each other and purify our souls and get the fuck out of here, um, which is ultimately like for, for the, like the real world on the ground, that's incredibly nihilistic. Yeah. Um, and that's the ethos that this movie is holding on to as well, where yeah. and you see a good critique of that through the whole movie, through uh, Cedric the Entertainer's character, where he also, I mean, he's he's kind of a nihilist in this very pure form where it's only, I mean, sticking with Nietzsche in terms, it's only the will to power for him that really matters. Um, it's, uh, can I grow the church? Can I gain more numbers? Can How do I appeal to a, the broadest audience possible? It's not how do I genuinely uh, lead uh, souls within the Christian tradition. It's just how do I amass the biggest... Uh, I mean, it's no different than like a YouTuber trying to think about how to get the biggest audience possible or an advertiser or something like that. Yeah. I mean, the, this movie definitely grapples directly with the business of religion, right? I mean, this is a very, 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 very American movie, right? <laughs> and, you know, I think I would be okay with all of this if if it wasn't Paul Schrader. Like, well, are you sure about that? Because specifically, how is this not... Uh, how is this not just another Paul Schrader movie? I well, mean, so what I'm getting at is that I think actually like having this this nihilistic 
or fatalistic point of view about the environment, I think it would be a I think it would be a far less bitter pill to swallow coming from someone who's going to be alive to see it. Mm. Um, Paul Schrader, when he made this movie, he was like seventy two. He's like seventy seven now, or something like that. And I mean, just like that fatalism coming from someone in their seventies, where it's like, well, there's nothing we can do about it. Let's just focus on ourselves, focus on our loved ones, and just you know, ride this baby out. That's okay for someone who's only going to be here for another few years. And that's that's what uh, Ethan Hawke's character, in theory. I mean, it seems like his days are numbered. I mean, you know, you never, you don't know what happens beyond the frame. Maybe he goes, right. starts going to a doctor. Sure. Gets help, but but yada, yada. no, like he's going he's gonna to die soon as well. All the characters actually who grapple with the this, this stuff, they die quickly. And uh, yeah, just the fact that like that's the point of view and like that's what you're imparting on your audience who... By the way, like Paul Schrader's audience, they're it's young men. His movies, like starting back from Taxi Driver, kind of going through to this movie and all the movies that Taxi Driver has inspired, or like movies that have outright, you know, <laughs> plagiarized Taxi Driver, like Falling Down, like Fight Club, like Joker. These are all movies that are like very powerful gateway movies for like young people to become cinephiles. Mm -hmm. Just the yeah. fact that like this might be the movie that gets that really gets under someone's skin for the first time. And the message is like, there's nothing you can do. We're all going to die. So don't even bother doing anything about it is really fucking well, irresponsible. Well, let me give you a great contrast from a director that is more our age and what that looks like when tackling the same subject is a movie that just came out, how to blow up a pipeline. Um, and it's looking at this same exact uh, moral conundrum that is unique to the, uh, that literally we're the only, you know, we're the only cohort of human beings on the planet that have ever had to face up to uh, uh, our own inevitable demise, uh, pretty much. Um, and the attitude that this movie takes um, is, well, let's do something about it. Let's actively, um, and actually, the same thing. It has a, it has a uh, character with cancer that doesn't have long to go. And instead of uh, like uh, the pastor who just decides to make out with Amanda Seyfried, no, uh, you know, no shame to that. Uh, but this character decides to join a radical group of people to blow up uh, oil infrastructure. Beautiful. I can't wait to see that movie. I'm going to see it. It's so good. Um, I'm going to see it next week. I think it's going to start playing at like the regals and of the world next week. It was playing um, at SIF. I think it might still be playing at SIF, but I just couldn't fit it into the schedule, but it's going to be playing more widely next week. And I'm going to mm. see that, but along with evil dead and bows. Uh, yeah. We're uh, there are going to be some good weeks coming up, uh, yeah. but yeah, it, it's, it's an entirely different attitude. I mean, it's, it's an attitude that you can tell just generally generationally period. I mean, this is something that, you see in just cultural dialogue outside of film, of course, where it's uh, older, older generations just don't see it quite as a threat. And it, to an extent, yeah, that makes sense. Um, it's because yeah. it's not as much of a well, threat. Right. Me. Well, and, and Paul Schrader is very smart boy. <laughs> he, um, he talks about this in interviews and he says like, look, I'm old. Like this isn't really my, this isn't really like my, you know, my bear to wrestle. He's like, I couldn't imagine being in my twenties right now and facing this down. And it's like, yeah, I, I can tell you can't imagine because you made this fucking movie. You, well, it's not that he can't, he just doesn't really want to. 
It's not interesting. Yeah. Yeah. But, but again, I will concede that this is a great movie and it's another in that long succession of movies that Paul Schrader, he didn't invent, but he perfected and uh, has really been the blueprint for like the Sigma male versus the world, <laughs> you know, like, uh, you know, 4chan, uh, you know, basement well, dwelling cinema, cinema, cinephile that loves these movies about dejected young men. Which is so interesting because when you hear his influences, none of them are American. Like it's Ozu and Brisson. Yeah. And I mean, and uh, he talks about a lot about, and you'll love this. Like he'll, he talks a lot about discovering Tarkovsky and enjoying and looking up to quote unquote slow cinema but not having the balls as a young man to make quote unquote slow cinema until this movie. Yeah. That's interesting. Now I think of it because I mean, he might have some American influences, but definitely his main influences are international. Um, and it seems like the big way that he separates himself from those people. And it's true of most American cinemas. It's really, really focused on the single protagonist hero and their mm -hmm. choices and and like and the grit and, and the violence as well yeah and you see you see kind of bumping up against his influences because especially in this movie like this is a movie that should that does have a very wide scope that does concern itself with the interconnectedness of everything and yet it just kind of stays slavish to like well let's see how ethan hawk's doing that that might be more important well I think it's okay if that character is an effective microcosm for society's ills or humanity's shortcomings or, you know, some kind of kernel of kind of connection to the broader issues that are then sort of in lockstep for the movie. But instead of that, he sort of just abandons any sort of like collective imperative and just, just focuses on Pastor Toller, hopefully mm -hmm. transcending spiritually. Actually, that's interesting that um, in bringing in some other characters is, is that's the main, uh, I feel like that's the main question of the film that you see over and over is, uh, can God forgive us? If, can God forgive us? Can, um, you know, if you're, if you believe in traditional Christian cosmology, like, can we, can the creator of the universe forgive us for, he gave us this thing and we wrecked it and it's caused in like, uh, you know, immeasurable amounts of suffering for the, the the creation that he made. Like, can he forgive us for that when we knowingly did it? Um, and that that's kind of the central question that the husband who eventually kills himself. Which, by the just quick side note, the the color contrast when he shoots himself, like that violent splatter of red in such a monotone movie, was striking. Mm, that was a great yeah. move. But anyways, the he's kind of he's a microcosm for that. Actually, I would almost rather watch the movie about him. Where mm -hmm. he's the microcosm, and he says, "Like I do know what's coming, and I can't forgive us for this, and so I'm just going to stop. That's the only thing I know to do is I'm going to just halt the train now instead mm -hmm. of let it go into oblivion." And I, in my, you know, in the essay that I wrote, I basically dive into the idea of, for lack of a better word, uh, it's not that we don't know. Because um, I think that's a that's a problem that a lot of people run into when they kind of scratch their heads about like climate denial or, you know, that we're still pumping or we're investing more and more in oil even today. It's like, how could we be doing this? We Like the facts are so clear. 
And that poses a question of this sort of fantasy that I think we have that if you sat down, I don't know, an Exxon Mobil CEO or something, and you just laid out the facts of climate change, uh, they'd be like, my goodness, this is, this is compelling and irrefutable. I am going to change everything now. I'm going to stop this. Like, that's not, that's not how people work. We're, we, we operate on a different logic than just straight nuts and bolts. Um, so I think that's ultimately why the climate activist guy, um, he despairs because like, I don't think he understands the sort of, I mean, dare I say, spiritual investment that we currently have in the way things are run right now. I mean, this is the only world we know. We can't imagine another one. So it's it's the idea of like, uh, well, yeah, you know, um, you're actually you're hearing these arguments today with like population, uh, uh, what's the word? Uh, oh, carrying capacity of a population. Like there's too many of us. Um, where it's like, you know, there's nothing we can do. It's just inevitable. It's a force of nature. Like we just can't, the earth can't take care of this many people. There's, you know, so some people are just gonna have to die because we're there's too many of us where it's like, no, that's not true. Like it doesn't have to be that way. We set it up in this particular way, and that means we can create alternatives. But all we're seeing are characters who are uh, even, I would say, even including Ethan Hawke's character, are, are just incapable of thinking outside of their own ideological boxes. So when when people are so confused and they're like, well, how could, or people look back and it's like, well, how could they have possibly done this? They knew the facts, and we do know the facts. It's just we don't have the political will or the creativity or the imagination to boldly press out in a different direction, to dismantle and remantle things. Well, I mean, we reward sort of individual gain as a capitalist society. I mean, like there's no incentive for old people to stop making money right? Well, there's no incentive for anyone to stop making money. I mean, even people, I don't know, you could, you could hear it all the time. Um, I, I, I bet you could hear the same thing with someone who works in oil right now at our age, where it's like, there's like, yeah, I know, like, it's destroying the world, but like, I need to pay rent. Or, you know, Johnny needs to go to school. Um, or, and you can dress it up with this, these justifications, or it's like, well, if I didn't do it, someone else would just take my job anyways. And that's, that's kind of, I thought that was going to be a place that they were going to explore the first time where it's like, if he debates, you know, killing the owner of the paper mill, uh, the, yeah. the, the, the governor and the, uh, the, the super church pastor, um, yeah. they would just, will just step up anyway. Yeah. yeah because they, they are not the problem. They, they, those individuals and they're what you could call moral failings or moral laziness, I guess would be really the word. Um, that's not what's causing this. It's a system that has existed long before they were born that will continue long after as long as people passively keep uh, preserving it. Um, and so it's like individual moral agency is sort of beside the point of the question. Maybe we are just on a rocket ship towards cataclysm. Maybe there is no stopping it. And well, and that's, you know, that's, uh, as the kids say, taking the doomer pill. And where I take a... And well, and that's what the husband does. I mean, he just fucking kills himself over it. I was hoping to see, and you can kind of see a glimmer of it in the ending, that it can be this idea of, um, it's called in some circles, like revolutionary optimism, where it's like knowing shit's fucked, knowing exactly why and how, and that odds are we can't turn it around at all, but still doing it anyways, still putting in that work anyways. Um, yeah. Now, you know, 
blowing yourself up in an old church to kill three people might not be, you know, the best tactics. Um, but it's at least made very clear, like, I get it. Like, I, I see where the guy, I see where he's coming from here. Yeah. Well, and he ultimately, I mean, he's he's going to do it until Mary walks in. Yeah, until Mary's in the church. Yeah. So, till Mary, uh, he, he pleads with Mary not to go to that event, and then she does anyway, and then he removes his suicide vest mm-hmm. and decides to just do a, you know, kind of a self-flagellation instead. So let's talk about that. Like, let's talk about kind of the role of women in this movie, maybe in Schrader's movies in general. I guess what's our take on how the female characters, you know, what purposes they serve. And I feel like they're props in, in a way, like, you know, in a way that you see in a lot of movies, but usually not movies that are this well made. The thing that I want to unwrap, I think specifically in this movie is that we find out early on in the movie, and it gets explored quite a bit, that he's had an affair with a colleague at the church. You know, a pretty, like, a sweet kind of plain woman his age that sort of is a little bit kind of clingy and fixated on him, and he violently (sighs) rejects her, uh, rejects her love, rejects her compassion, regret, uh, rejects her nurturing, yet he is more than happy to invite this kind of hot young lady into his life what's your take on that dan um wait first off i wanted to because I, I i took a point to write it down because i was like fuck man uh where he tells her when she like um not is like being not overbearing but like very concerned for him and he's kind of like back off um he's i despise what you bring out with me or bring out in me you are a stumbling block oof yeah <laughs> oh my god um, yeah, I guess I never thought about the two women. Uh, really, in contrast, my focus was mostly on Amanda Seyfried. Um, but, I mean, it's a problem that Schrader and, honestly, like uh, men of his generation have with writing women. They're just not very good. Or uh, There's a lot well, of them who just well, flat out well, aren't good no. at it. No, 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 no. Let, let's not dismiss Schrader in that regard. Because Schrader once wrote a female character so poorly that someone tried to kill Reagan about it. <laughs> it's true. Um, so uh, let's not let's quite not take that reductive stance. Like, what is it about Schrader's female characters? I mean, in this one in particular, it's following a a, a really old trope, um, especially like you see it in religious films. We also see it in secular ones is like women as pure beings that uh, are separated from the world and are like pure spirit and goodness, and they're here to redeem. The, the dirty, lost men of the world who have to get their hands in the soil and the muck of the everyday, like, uh, of politics and war and, you know, uh, business and all that stuff. And then he comes home and the woman, you know, embraces him and purifies him and makes him whole again. Like, that's that's this movie right here. Like, that's the arc. Yeah. I mean, s- seemingly, right? Like, he makes out with Mary at the end. He seems like he that's his that's kind of the apparatus he uses to ascend spiritually or transcend spiritually. Um, But it's like their, their relationship is not really of a, like it doesn't appear to be romantic or even sexual in nature prior to the last 30 seconds of the movie. It's shared trauma. I don't know. Yeah. Shared trauma. There's comfort. Like, 
there is that kind of, kind of like physical affection in the one scene, I suppose. But like that, compare that to like an actual sexual romantic relationship, nurturing relationship that he had with the other lady. Like, like what? Why is that the one that's rejected? But this um, sort of, I don't know, like nebulous, kind of ill-defined relationship he has with Mary is the one that kind of redeems him. Like, wh why is that? Well, other than uh, other than the fact that like she's pregnant. She she's Mary and she's pregnant with a you know her her now fatherless child, who uh, you know, who has forsaken him to a, a world he needs to save. Yeah, uh, you know, I, I feel like I've heard that story somewhere before, and I don't really care to go talk about it that much. But like, what is it in like on planet Earth? Well, that, that I mean, separates my, those women. The first answer that comes to mind is like you don't know that that's not where that relationship is going to end. That. Uh, between Amanda Seyfried and Ethan Hawke, like, you know, if you, maybe uh, him and the other woman, that's just, uh, you know, that's that same relationship just with four years of time and resentment right. being built right. in there where um, then like the excitement stops and the, the novelty of it wears off and now all of a sudden it's back to daily rigmarole. Like maybe um, that's how that relationship started in the first place because you could tell, you could tell that it seemed like it was always something of an illicit affair and, you know, maybe not cheating or anything. Uh, I don't think that, but right. like that. But maybe it's illicit in that they sh they're colleagues and he's the pastor. Yeah. And like, it yeah. seems like she was like the, the arms that he probably fell in after the tragedies of his son right. dying and his wife right. leaving him. So it just seems like a, it seems like Amanda Seyfried is just like a second example of that happening. Yeah, or like he—he's the arms now that she's falling into, mm, and that mm. reversal of roles is, you know, it, it's more comfortable for him than being on the receiving end of the nurture. I mean, there's something kind of poetic about that being the end or end of the movie for his character arc of becoming, uh, basically, almost going through the same process as the husband, but not killing himself. I mean, he does—he drops the. Uh, the Drano when she walks in, like he doesn't want to, well, he doesn't want to blow up her and her baby but, yeah. uh, first off, but he also doesn't want to, her to deal with a, a second suicide that week. Yeah. Give it a month. Right. Where, where do you think this movie kind of falls in the pantheon of not necessarily like Christian movies, but like movies that deal with faith, and the loss of faith and like the or like you know, the sacrifice of religion or the intersection of religion and, and society. Yeah, and, and how that how it can be quite a challenge to material society or um especially I mean even the story of Jesus itself. I mean, uh taken if you rip out the divine bits, it's basically about a radical that's seeking to to take out the state and build this yeah. little utopia. In fact, in fact, Schrader did just that, didn't he? Yeah. Um, did he write Last Temptation of Christ? Yeah. No, That's there what we I'm go. referring to, yeah. <laughs> um, but anyways, yeah, I think that that's most interesting in the, no pun intended, trinity of uh, Ethan Hawke's character, Cedric Tanner's character, and who plays the uh, owner of Balk? Uh, Michael G Gaston? Yep. Gaston. Which, first off, he uh, does not get the credit he deserves. Oh, my God, he plays hateable perfectly but like in such a subdued way 
There's nothing, there's no mustache twirling or anything, but wow, did I hate that guy in a hurry. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of just like what he says. Like, it's but, the writing even, even like as much as his performance. But yeah, like it's immediately just, wow, he is just, just slime. Fucking blood boiling. Yeah. Um, but so, and I think uh, what this really highlights in the three characters. So you've got the pu- the pure man of material means, which is the the CEO of Bulk. You've got the uh, sort of like the modern day Pharisee in Cedric the Entertainer, um, and then you've got, I mean, for lack of a better word, like the Christ figure in Ethan Hawke's character. Um, and very similar to biblical stories, Ethan Hawke stands as uh, indifferent to cultural norms um, and much more committed to the teachings of the Bible. I mean, he's a pastor. That makes sense. Um, and But then you hear Cedric the Entertainer as a uh, mega... Not, not a, I don't know what word I want to use, but it's not a mega church, a very mainstream church. And this is actually... It was very similar to the kind of church I grew up in. And you can hear it in the... Uh, in, the difference between the verses that Ethan Hawke chooses in his church and the verses that Cedric the Entertainer uses, where um, the sermons are very palatable. They're very comforting. It's very, it's almost self-help in a way. Um, and I think it's very telling in the small group scenes. We actually haven't gotten that. First off, hilarious rendition of a youth pastor. Just perfect. Uh, oh yeah, the youth pastor character in the small group. Oh my! Even just the inner arm tattoos. Like he may as well have had the chair turned around, sitting on it, straddled. Um, oh, it was perfect. But and it's a very American idea of Christianity, and it's very peculiar to American Christianity. Um, is the idea of the prosperity gospel that um, those who are pious and follow God's laws will be rewarded uh, materially? or relationally or like their life their life will improve and they'll feel better which is like i i cannot think of something that is more against the dictums of the bible um is that (laughs) idea um and you hear like this one woman i I think she's talking about her father and that her father's always been a pious man always been a good christian like things aren't going well for him and and uh talking to uh the pastor about like well what's going on that's not the deal that's uh something something's not adding up here and you know, Ethan Hawke, there's so many stories from the Bible that can talk about just that. I mean, the book of Job comes to mind easily about how like being a good, being a good Christian does not mean you won't suffer. That that's not, it's not a palliative for suffering. It never claimed to be. And then, but then you start hearing the other members of the church, like kind of lay in to Ethan Hawke's character when he says like, well, yeah, um, sometimes it do be like that. I don't know what to tell you. Um, and they're like, so what then? So, so what's even the point? Like, they don't like they, they only see Christianity as like an investment to get something um, in very uh, debits and credits kind of terms. And you know, so there were because of uh, like basic structures of how the economy works, of how of how we interact with each other in a market. Like we've marketized how to even understand spirituality and Christianity. So it's not uh, surprising that Schrader uh, writes a character who draws from tradition that is part of, I mean, the Dutch were still very much capitalists like that. That's undeniable, but it's not, uh, it, it's got much older roots and it doesn't have this ephemeral nature about it that American Christianity currently has. And, and you see that too in the mega church where you have to have messages like this. And I have sat in giant mega churches before that like 
it, it like a good pop concert or like a good uh, yeah like a, like a good entertainer. You need to create a message with a broad appeal um, and you know suffering and dealing with uh, the climate collapse and and facing up to the injustice of the world. That doesn't feel good on a Sunday. You don't want to go to that. You're less motivated. You want to hear things about. Um, things that'll make you happy and good things that have happened lately or what Jesus, what great things Jesus has in store for everyone. Right. And well, at least those are the things that are going to pull in the most, you know, tithing. Yeah. 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 It's not only, it's going to keep people coming back, but then yeah, it's going to more people means more tithing, you know, means more money. The church can maintain its status uh, and it can attract donors still to keep the church going because the, that kind of message is, well, it's not like, it's not like I think that Cedric the Entertainer is in the back, like thinking, okay, how can I make a message that's going to appeal to big donors that they're going to want to hear? It's just, it ha like, it just happens to line up with the ideology of big business as well. well um, it's probably the reason why he has his job is that he has this sort of innate ability to sort of kind of move the church in those directions. Where in, in, it goes back to what I was saying, like, these aren't mustache rolling villains. These aren't charlatans. These are like, I think Cedric, the entertainer's character genuinely believes in this version of Christianity. I mean, you see that in the conversation towards the end when like, you know, Ethan Hawke is having a tough go. And uh, so him and Cedric, the entertainer are chatting. He's like, he's genuinely concerned for him. He's like, Hey man, like you're not looking good. Everyone's noticing that you're not looking good. Uh, you got your trash cans half full of whiskey bottles. Like you all right there, dude. And then they start having the conversation about how can we destroy God's planet like this? How can that be part of God's plan? Um, where Cedric the Entertainer pretty much says like, oh, that's like really arrogant of you to think that uh, we can we can alter God's plan. We just have to passively trust that everything's going according to plan. Where that's like nowhere in the Bible does that say, does it say like, yeah, just kick back and let God take care of everything. It's, it's like... So much in the Gospels and so much within Jesus' life, too, is a direct challenge to live out these values. Like, things will go according to God's plan if you act under God's will, uh, not sit back and just let him do these things. Which is, like, another, like, that just kind of piles on to my frustration with, with the ending. Just, yeah. just this sort of uh, celebration of inaction. Like, it just... I mean, I, I kind of I grew up with the same sort of messaging, like in the churches that I attended as a kid, was like like free will and uh, the sort of stewardship of God's domain, like that that was on humanity, not on God. Like I remember being a little kid, being like, you know, if God exists, like why do like why do like all these bad things happen? And you know, I always got that same answer. That's yeah, a like, problem that's, of evil. Yeah, that's human responsibility, right? Like that's mm -hmm. so. Like that's that's every child's like first question for their Sunday school teacher, right? And like I don't know, this movie just completely kind of ignores that responsibility to like a point that I I feel like it's it's kind of grotesque. Yeah, I mean, yeah, you're. I mean, we're already pointing that direction. You're probably going to get me conceding here, um, but it, it also poses something that this is actually a particularly Western idea, especially within modern western religion um you see some of an ancient western re religion but you don't see this in eastern religion or or more eastern cultures in general it's the idea that we are not a part of nature that we are something separate from it so you know in in uh in biblical terms that means you know we have souls we're the only we're the only creatures on god's earth with a soul um so we are the stewards of the earth we are above it 
um, where that's a that's a particularly Western idea, and it's more specifically a post. Um, enlightenment idea is that we are these rational uh overseers of the planet and we're really the only ones with the cognitive capabilities to make the earth uh work for us pretty much and you know we've done that uh to an ex like to to grand extents um where you know that a more eastern approach is to understand that um yeah, there are, there are cities, there are civilization, there are man-made structures, but they are just as much a part of nature as like a bird's nest. Um, or, or, you know, the birds themselves. Like, yeah, it may have been created by a creature instead of just naturally occurring, but like, who's to say that mankind getting together and building a skyscraper isn't an expression of nature just as much as a bird building a nest? Um, so as a part of the interconnected system, we have to understand uh, our position within it and act responsibly within it. Yep. Where it was like, uh, like I forget if I was talking to you or as my buddy, where it's like you you hear this a lot with people too uh, when they're they're kind of sitting back on their heels and it's almost similar. It's like, oh, it's God's plan. It's people kind of with this pure faith, uh, and I use the word faith deliberately in the market, um, where it's like uh, the market will provide a solution. Like climate change is real. It's a problem. Um, but we're going to essentially market, incentivize our way out of it. Like eventually it's going to be profitable to be eco-friendly. So then all of these capitalists that are destroying the environment will now be incentivized to save it. Mm. Which like, that's just, it's just, it's just dumb. Like that's just not the way. It's demonstrably that, not true. There are guardrails in place to pre actively prevent that. <laughs> <laughs> Um, yeah, I mean, it's the idea. It's it's a phrase that gets thrown around a lot in climate circles where it's like infinite growth on a finite planet is the ideology of a cancer cell. <laughs> That's funny or horrifying. <laughs> yeah, uh, accurate. Uh, what haven't we touched on? Um, man, I feel like we, we were pre mentally preparing to be here for hours, but I'm already kind of feeling like we're losing steam. Well, I think the thing that might get misconstrued from this conversation is that I think this is a spiritual film first and a political film second. Yeah, um, right, 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 right. So, like, my hangups about the politics of the film, I kind of leave shelved because that's almost... It would, like, be, I don't know, it would be, like, getting mad at the politics in, like, I don't know, Lord of the Rings or something. It's like, well, that's not the point. Like, Well, this movie makes it the point by ruminating heavily on global issues like if like if the movie didn't kind of go to incredible lengths to make one man's spiritual journey a microcosm for this thing that touches all of us um i don't think it would be a problem that the person that made it has that thing touch him way less than it touches me i don't need paul schrader to touch me no he's he's got it got that like He's Great a dirty old man. Though, yeah. yeah. He's got dirty yeah. old man. Well, also, yeah, when have I, you I seen... put my feelers out? <laughs> Him and Ralph Bakshi kind of look and sound. Oh, they have very act. similar energy. Oh, yeah. very much alike. Um, what was I? I do love that uh, friends listening from the ether go check out Paul Schrader's Twitter. It is wonderful. He oh, is such God. an old man yelling at clouds, but the problem is. He's such an articulate old man yelling at these clouds. Right, right. Yep. <laughs> that therein lies the problem. He's, he's a, he is he's not dummy. He's as not a kids dummy. say, he is a problematic fave of mine. Yeah. Um, um, but yeah, 
because I think what's what I, what I was trying to get at in like the, the within the three characters is how different parts of the superstructure influence one another in ways that we don't even recognize. So when I when I say that like uh, in the essay, I, I I mentioned that it's like the line "Forgive them, Father, for they do not know what they do." I remember being really confused about that as a kid because it's like, yeah, they do, like. Well, yeah, they should know that torturing and killing someone is bad. Yeah, like like the Romans uh, knew that when they tied him up and nailed him to a cross, he's going to die. Like the people jeering at him know yeah. that like they, they're all aware. So what do you mean they don't know what they're doing? Like uh, even yeah. some of them there like knew yeah. that Jesus claimed to be the Messiah. They they knew his program um, and they still rejected him and, and wanted death upon him. But I think it's when he says they do not know what they do, it's a much deeper uh plea that he's making where it's like they they're so ideologically uh enmeshed in at the time you know roman uh roman culture for us it's modern american culture that like we can't yeah we, we just can't imagine an alternative a, a term for this uh that gets drawn a lot i don't know if you've heard this one it's called capitalist realism uh nope. And it's basically the, the tagline of it is like, it's easier to imagine the end of the world than the end of capitalism. So uh, dystopias really lean into that. Uh, children of Men is a prime example of that, where it's, it is easier for audiences to imagine the world of children of men than a world that we drop capitalism and get our shit together and don't create a children of men. Right, 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 right. Like our imaginations are just so stunted. And that's what I think is meant by like, they do not know what they do is that we can't even we we don't even have the uh, a vocabulary to express an alternative hmm. yeah I, I this kind of remember uh, a few weeks back when we were talking about apocalypse stories and we did a we did uh an on-air wikipedia or google search about post-apocalyptic movies that are not american or not western and hmm. there's like almost none <laughs> Yeah, well, yeah, I'm trying to think of other contexts, but like, especially, you know, America, well, first off, there's just more American movies, but we also see ourselves as the center of the world. So like, if the apocalypse happens, it's going to be our fault. Now, you know, we might be right about that one. Um, but like, we're the only ones so ideologically committed to staying on this track that it's, yeah, it's easier for us to imagine this all getting destroyed and living in Mad Max than it is to live in some kind of like weird post-capitalist utopia of some sort. Right. Well, if my futurism message boards and subreddits are to be believed, AI is going to be the thing that pushes us towards a basic universal income. Well, yeah, and, and we'll all just be playing the guitar together. And that that's another uh, kind of interesting thing that we see that's going on now that uh, expresses this as well, um, is that we have we have an amazing ability to innovate, but we don't really have that much imagination <laughs> where, right. um, you know, most of our innovations these days, um, actually, David Graeber is a really interesting guy that talks about this, where uh, if you look at... Uh, stories of the future, expectations of the future in like the 1900s and the 20s, um, it was really optimistic. They were seeing flying cars. We were seeing a world free from work. We were like, and th there were genuine predictions like based on current innovations of how much more efficient we can produce. Like we're going to be able to make 
enough for everyone uh, to live at least a comfortable enough life while working like eight hours a day or eight hours a week. Um, and, and there was perfect, there was reason to believe that it was heading that direction. Uh, but then you start slowly seeing uh, media that talks about the future, uh, as the, the century wears on until we get to today, like it stops being so fantastical and starts being more pessimistic. Like, right. I mean, now every innovation just like it, it doesn't make our lives easier. It, it just automates jobs away and it puts people on the street. So we can't, we have an um, enormous ability to innovate technically, but we have such a paltry imagination on what it could possibly mean for what human relations look like after that. Yeah, well, and this movie being a pre-apocalyptic thriller has even less imagination than that. It does, yeah, because it's like, oh, well, I guess um, I won't blow up anyone, so I guess I'll just, like, make out with my girlfriend. Yeah, I mean, and that 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 that's kind of, that is reductive, right? Like, Trader's not I not not okay. operating really on those wavelengths. Like he he set out to make a movie that is specifically a study of like a very specific, um, you know, school of thought or, or school of like you know philosophy around like this whole like kind of transcendentalism where. You know, he was like, who he, by the way, like, just like your, your cinema history lesson, Schrader literally wrote the book right. on, on transcendentalism, the cinema. Like he was, well, like he was watching, watching movies in his twenties and reading Thoreau and Emerson. He was, he, he like just had to like, kind of like, you know, cr like point out the, the kind of the connective tissue. And then he purposely didn't make a move like his own attempt at that until this movie. So like he had this very, very distinct vision and very kind of narrow focus on what he wanted to accomplish with this movie. So in a way, like I will, I will say that like my take on like this very specific, but very vile shortcoming that I see in this movie, it, it is not like a direct, you know, admonishment of what Schrader set out to do. Schrader was very successful making the movie he wanted to well, make. And For that's me, what, it, it just feels irresponsible. Yeah, and that's to his credit where I would rather, because this is a true expression of himself. Like, this is auteur theory in the purest sense of the word. Where this, and personal. He grew up in, in a yeah. Dutch Reformed church so in upstate New York. This, this shows, like, we can, yeah, we can critique it and we can bash it, or not bash it, but, like, we can look at the holes and explore his ideas. But what we can never deny is th these are genuinely his thoughts and feelings on the, the on life and on what it means to be human, warts and all. Um, and, and similar to Bakshi, actually, where it's like my my uh, critiques of Bakshi um, will never be uh, about disingenuineness or shortcomings on his style or his ability to express. It's just like. Right. I'm going to go after what that expression looks like. But I know that's truly the man that, that is coming out where, you know, what's more, uh, I would say vile is, is if he covered this up, if he, if he did made a different uh, ending or something like that, because he'd be like, well, audiences wouldn't like that or, or this might be inappropriate or something like that. Oh. Where it's like, this is genuinely his idea. So we can, we can address his ideas on his own terms too. Right. Well, and I'll admit, also, this movie would be boring as shit if he just fucking blew up the church and the movie ended. 
Yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, I don't know how I would end it either. Um, oh, uh, that's a that's a fun question. I, I might go um, the taxi driver route. I would have him go and just like instead of blowing up the church, he just goes and fucking like forces some Drano down the <laughs> uh, the capitalist guy's throat, bulk bulk's throat, <laughs> or it goes in there and wraps him in barbed wire, stabs um, him or something. So this is a question that how to blow up a pipeline. Both the the book and the movie pose. Um, and you see it again in this movie. Would it have been wrong to do it? To bomb his church? Yes. My kind of black and white morality says, of course, it would be wrong. Um, uh, just because, like, while yes, it would make a statement and it might actually have a direct impact if he was able to take out this governor and factory owner. Uh, you know, I mean, again, like we were saying earlier, they would just be quickly replaced. And, but also, he, I mean, the depth of all those innocents for me is just like, that's like a moral, it's an easy moral question that's a, that's to say. A no, no. Um, that's a no-no. Yeah. I would say, um, you're not looking at it on the film's own terms. Terms, uh, this film is not looking at if this would be a political win or if this would be a, uh, yeah, a tact, a good tactical move. This is saying, um, would this be justice brought upon uh, the people who, like it, it? Yeah, is it justice? Uh, no. I mean, it wouldn't be like the the punishment doesn't fit the crime all the way around. It wouldn't right any wrongs, and it wouldn't rehabilitate anyone or anything. It would just be an expression of rage that hopefully gets noticed and and hopefully like would create a conversation but i, I yeah I, for me it's like the juice would never justify the squeeze in this scenario because mm. yeah i mean i'm trying to look at it more on a spiritual front um because i mean you, you see this all the time um uh who we define as terrorists depends on whose team we're on um, right. So, like, the U.S. commits war crimes, that's not terrorism. What we do in Guantanamo Bay, that's not terrorism. Uh, but the IRA blows up a car, that's right. terrorism. Well, um, uh, that's a that's a very it's a very solid question, just given that this man and his son both gave away so much for this quote unquote war on terror. Yeah, and he's kind of a chewed up and spit out. Uh, consequence of the, the greater war on terror. So it's like when the chickens come home to roost, is that unjust? Is that unwarranted? I, I think it's harder to say. I don't think it like, I wouldn't say, no, it's good. I wish you would have blown everyone sky high. Hell yeah. High five. But it's like, as with most uh, things that are perceived as acts of terror, like it's, it's a, there's a kernel of justification. There's a reason why you're seeing suicide bombers in the Middle East, but you're not seeing them in like Ohio or something. Right. Um, because it, it's a it's a very extreme response to a very extreme grievance that's been brought upon them. It's never, yeah, it, it seems like to me, like these sorts of active terrors are always a, in reaction to. It's not mm -hmm. the opening salvo. It's it's a uh, it, it's actually in the movie How to Blow Up a Pipeline. It's 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 looked at as an act of self defense. I mean, the Black Panthers use the same terminology where it's like they arm the shit out of themselves. They will fight back against cops. They'll 
they'll basically be a violent threat to authority. And it's not seen as for for authority. It's seen as attack for them. It's community defense. So who's a terrorist here? Yeah. And I, but I, I also don't think that's what's happening in this movie. Like, no. I, and that's why that's what climate change. It's a much harder thing to pin down um, because it's like, yeah, you can't just point at these five guys, put them in jail and dismantle what they did. And now climate change is fixed. Um, I mean, we're all to a level culpable. Um, and you see him dealing with that as well as him as a, uh, you know, a very, very small cog in a very big machine that's only churning out death and destruction in the end. Yeah. So it's like yeah. he can't, he can't even like passively be a part of this or or at first, it's like he can't even just like kind of tip his cap and bow out and say, "You guys keep doing what you're doing. I just don't want any. I don't want any part of this." Like he feels the need to actively throw his body into the machine and see if he can't break up some gears or something. Well, yeah, he probably feels like an extra amount of culpability compared to the average person, just given that he is the figurehead of a church whose primary benefactor is one of the world's biggest polluters. Right? I actually, I almost didn't like that scene. Um, because it gave a, it gave a suggestion of conspiracy that I don't think is appropriate in the film. Um, you mean where he's looking up the yeah, the where he, he sees he, it, he, connect, like, he connects all the dots from the other fellow's research. Yeah, he may as well be Charlie Day, like with all the right. the, the yeah, yarn, yeah. like pointing around that meme. Yeah. Um, where that that got a little, and you know that's a that's probably a little bit of a. Uh, leftover of Schrader being a child of 70s cinema where that's full of cons shadowy conspiracies and stuff like that because right. I think A, it's closer to reflection of reality and B, it's much more harrowing to believe that no one's behind this. There isn't a mastermind. Like, it's not like you. we got the boards of all the CEOs together and they put on their 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 robber masks and twist their mustaches and laugh evilly. It's like, well, we're going to make so much more money. <laughs> like, <laughs> that's not how this works. It's just boring people in suits trying to deliver some more profit. Like, that's what I always have, like, what I always try to impart on people who are, like, really in conspiracy theories or, or really, like take stock in it where it's like i wish the world was made that much sense and was that exciting but it's just not like uh evil is much more banal than that so it sounds like you're going to be writing a concession of sorts yeah 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 because it's just it's you're right it's what, um it's uh, everything I love about it, which is what has made me, what has made it stick in my mind so much, and it, which I think is makes it such an important uh, cultural touchstone, especially in 2017, is that it, it was asking some really bold, daring questions, um, and then it just kind of doesn't doesn't care at the end. It's like, right. oh, well, maybe what if we just like hugged. And just what, well, basically what it's doing, and this is something that only people that live in um, pretty much parts of the world that aren't going to be directly affected by climate change. So kind of like what you're saying with like old people in general, um, where it's uh, the suggestion here is to turn inward and to just love your family and your community and those around you and take care of them, which, I mean, that's, that's a very nice message. And that sounds good. Uh, the only problem is that doesn't fix shit. Cause while you're doing like, you have the luxury of doing that in, you know, middle-class society in upstate New York. Um, 
try giving that message to someone who lives in Ethiopia right now when uh, the water, no, not South Africa right now, when the water tables are dropping by the day and they're almost out. Like they can't just, oh, just be kind to one another. So it does come from a very privileged position as well, or a very, a very narrow view of uh, what we can do. Because like even I, I'm thinking now of India too, which is getting record heat waves and is causing, uh, you know, it's causing crop failures, it's causing uh, mass migrations, um, and to just if they watched this movie and took the message of it of just like you know get right with your God and take care of those who are around you, like. You're, you're giving up like it's over you're just waiting for the end yeah. and for some people yeah. the end has already come like well uh, and for some for some writer directors the end is nigh and for his audience members you know their lives are just beginning yeah like it's just not a sufficient answer for someone for the for the the unborn child in this film it is like okay in schrader's defense and in um, you know, contrast to, or in challenge to my own argument, Pastor Toller does make a judgment call to not abort the child with a bomb. Like <laughs> yeah. he, he does decide not to harm the baby. Well, and do you think it's about the baby, the baby like, into the world? If Mary was not pregnant, I'm, look, look, I'm grasping at straws, like <laughs> doing my best to be a good debater and poke holes in my own argument. And maybe it could be the baby, but let's be real here. It's Amanda Seyfried's eyes. Oh, oh, yeah, her, her, her eyes. Yeah. My favorite part about her, besides her acting, and her elbows, big elbow guy over here. Yeah, I like shoulders a lot. <laughs> you don't see her shoulders in this movie. A good, a tasteful back of the shoulder is actually. It's, it's mm -hmm. He had a ball gown. Quite, quite enjoyable. Quite enjoyable. Well, uh, okay. well what, what, what do you recommend for for uh, hmm. for folks who either well, like? I've already brought up. Or... I've already brought with the two movies I would recommend have already been brought up. Where it's kind of like if this movie is the intersection of the political and the spiritual. I'm separating them. Um, where the spiritual is the last temptation of Christ, mm -hmm. and the political mm -hmm. is how to blow up a pipeline. Yeah, uh, how to blow up a pipeline currently in theaters. Probably not by the time that we release this. Um, Last Temptation of Christ is on Amazon Prime right now, I believe. Uh, so go to uh, our good friend Jeff's library and go purchase or go get that for free. He has blessed us with some Last Temptation of Christ. Nice. It's been a hot minute since I've seen Last Temptation of Christ. Um, I saw that movie when I was all the way in my uh, Twitter movie phase, uh, even though this was before Twitter existed. Uh, you call it Twitter movies. I call it kind of... Sigma male basement oh, dwelling yeah, movies. Yeah. Um, but when I was, you know, 15, 16, and I was like, hell yeah, Fight Club, American History Act, American Psycho, American Beauty, American Everything, Falling Down, which uh, we'll talk about in a second. Uh, I, I watched The Last Temptation of Christ um, because also I was a big fan at the time of the passion of the Christ. Um, <laughs> just because, just Wait, for did I tell you that fact, was the first R rated movie I'd ever seen? That makes perfect sense from what I know about your childhood. <laughs> um, for me, that was just like one of the best Gornos ever made. Like, well, like that that movie was like that movie and Saw came out within months of each other, <laughs> and just like kickstarted the torture porn craze. And oh, that's, that's a fun why I, that's feature. why I like that's why I like the Passion. Uh, of the can Christ. can in October can we do Passion of the Christ and only talk about it as a horror movie? 
absolutely. Or I, I just listened to we, ju- we just missed like this is we're right now today is uh uh we're we're currently f- four days post Easter. So tomorrow, mm-hmm. tomorrow uh, yeah, six days ago. Oh, so first reformed was appropriate. Six days ago it would have been the anniversary of the Passion of the Christ. Huh. Um what was I not gonna the say? Mo- about? Not the movie, the 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 event. Yeah, yeah, the actual passion. <laughs> Um, yeah. But uh, that that does remind me, um, a great uh, episode I just listened to. There's a horror pag- podcast I listen to called Horror Vanguard, and uh, every once in a while they purposely do movies that are not horror movies, and they treat it like one. Um, and All this right, one they steal, did. Let's the, do that. Uh, they did the Ten Commandments, and I was like, uh, "That's perfect." <laughs> uh, we'll do the pa- we'll do the Passion. Yeah, uh, I I need to rewatch the Last Temptation of Christ. I remember like kind of the bullet points. I remember how it made me feel. I remember doing a deep dive into the controversies. Um, by the way, Paul Schrader was the intended target of a terrorist bombing in 1988. Oh yeah, as a result um, of Last Temptation. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm wondering how much uh, how much that experience kind of informed reformed first reformed. Yeah. He's like maybe. Christians shouldn't bomb people. I I just don't because right. I I don't like that. Yeah. Oh, he, he, that, he must he must have he must have considered these things <laughs> when writing this movie, uh, right? So, what are your recommendations over there? Yeah, so uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna take kind of a also sort of an opposite approach where I'm gonna recommend a movie that we talked about a few weeks ago in the context of Oscar nominations, uh, a short documentary called Stranger at the Gate. Mm. which is about a person who is considering strongly motivated to uh, uh, carry out a terrorist attack at a place of worship. And instead of kind of making his, his statement on a global stage, he, uh, and, and instead of kind of that, that, that sort of individualistic expression of rage that he plans to carry out, he finds community and um, places himself within an institution or a, a, a society that he was previously on the fringes of rather mm. than like the opposite that happens in, in First Reformed. And yeah, it's uh, one, one of the best documentaries I've seen in the last few years. And it's only 29 minutes long and it's on YouTube, Stranger mm. at the Gate. My other one is going to be more sort of surface level in a movie I probably mentioned a couple times briefly tonight. Uh, it's Falling Down by Jerry Bruckheimer. I haven't seen this one. Um, yeah, we'll add Wait, it to Jerry our list. Jerry Bruckheimer directs? Yeah, dude. When did that um, happen? Falling Down, 1993. Please, I'm going to make sure I'm... Oh, you know what? I'm, I'm totally wrong about that. I'm mixing him up with another, uh, another guy around his age. Uh, it was uh, Joel Schumacher. Who's famous mm. for Batman and Robin and Batman Forever? My mistake. Sorry about that. Yeah, so it was, it was a Joel Schumacher joint, and uh, yeah, Falling Down is um, very much in the mold of Taxi Driver. Mm. Like no, no ways around that. It's about a um, a man who's capable of violence who hasn't expressed that violence yet. Seeing the urban decay around him. He's at rock bottom because of his personal life. He sees, you know, inequities. He sees capitalism run rampant and he just fucking loses his mind. And uh, I think this movie, yeah, like the character has kind of similar journeys to Schrader's protagonist, um, except this movie keeps things way less ambitious than something like First Reformed. Mm -hmm. The issues aren't quite as global or catastrophic, but they're still societal or political in nature. And watching, you know, Michael Douglas's 
protagonist, uh, William, uh, kind of confront those things within kind of the context of what he's experiencing personally is uh, it's fun to watch in a way, but also tragic. And it's just a good movie. Michael Doug one of the better Michael Douglas performances. And um, yeah, it doesn't bite off nearly as much as First Reformed, but I, I, I like it because of oh, that. I know this movie only from one thing or one thing that I've like consumed or read where it was an essay talking about uh, quote unquote, like the, for lack of a better word, the Sigma males are like white dude snaps, white dude discovers injustice mm -hmm. and snaps finally. Yep. Um, yeah. And it was kind of posing and, and using falling down as like the central uh, film for it, where it's like, this is something in art that only white men can do um, where if yeah. a, a woman does it or a person of color does it, they're terrorists. It's a uh, queen and slim would be an example of that Bonnie and Clyde uh, mm -hmm. or at yeah. least Bon character of Bonnie. Um, but, or do the right thing, uh, I guess would be another example where it's like white white office worker dudes uh, are almost like celebrated for snapping. They're noble heroes who have seen the light. Mm, uh, yeah. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I, I see that like those sort of antiheroes are celebrated in like kind of fringe online culture. And, you know, I think the people that celebrate these characters, they are you know, rightly derided for it by polite yeah, true, society. Or it's like, yeah, if you um, like Tyler Durden, you're missing the point. Yeah, with Falling Down, no, I think the, the movie itself is not on the side of the protagonist. Oh. Um, okay, that's he, very interesting. He, he, like, just narratively, he functions as an antagonist. Like, there is a protagonist character who is in opposition to him oh. that is more of, you know, part part of oh. society or, or what we think of as good. It's on like, Hoopla. My, I might watch this. How long is it? If it's not too long, because I'm yeah. Busy. I was gonna say like I would I would like to add it to our oh, schedule. Yeah, then I'll hold it off. But, but at, at the same time, you know, I feel like we might be just sort of reiterating tonight's discussion. So watch it. Let me know what you think. We'll talk about it at some point on the show. Well, and I think there's no harm in. Um, I mean, eventually we can start. This might be a little more behind the scenes. Is um, start doing thematic months. So we could have done a month of like white dudes acting wild. Okay, we need more of them than a month for that. There's so many just like seminal pictures that are that. <laughs> um, oh yeah, the number one popular review for Falling Down Letterbox: Middle Age, Middle Age, Angry White Guy with a Machine Gun, the movie. It's a it, it's a fun movie. Um, it, I, oh yeah, I, like I haven't seen it, so I can't really judge it. Um, it's I'm sure that it's aged poorly in some some ways, but as long as you like accept what I think is a fact that the movie is not on the side of that main character, um, you probably can forgive some of its um, uh, some of the like the roughness around its edges. Well, and also like. This is um, a trend that we're exhausted with now in 2023. Uh, in 1993, very different story. So, yeah, some of the um, just kind of stances, you know, political or, or social stances that Michael Douglas's character takes are, are actually even kind of woke by today's standards. Mm. Um, but I, I won't spoil it for you. Um, watch it. Like I would say, like don't don't um wait, kind of wait for the podcast episode. You know, I don't. I don't know if uh, there's enough meat on the bones to to actually uh, necessitate a whole episode, but um, I'd be interested well, to hear what you think. We did a whole episode on Ant Man and the Wasp. Yeah, that, that's true. <laughs> yeah, I would say this is the better Michael Douglas movie of the two. 
Well, I think that's going to do it for tonight. Oh, and, uh, uh, what are we doing next week, Jared? Uh, oh, next week's yeah. a special week. It's a holiday. Yeah, <laughs> next week is the 20th of April. What what month? Uh, what number month is April in? Well, that would be the fourth fourth month of, and it's the twentieth day of the fourth month, is it not? In this, uh, what is it? The year of our Lord, twenty twenty three. Yeah, uh, that will that is. Uh, well, it's Hitler's birthday. It's is it actually huh. my grand my grandma's birthday. Oh, that's unfortunate. And it's um, it's Snoop Dogg's birthday. Hmm. Well, it's not really your grandma and Snoop Dogg. I think are better then Hitler is bad. You haven't met my grandma. I just assume she's a sweet lady, I suppose. <laughs> she's, she's, she's long dead. She, if she was alive right now, she'd be 102 years old. Well, was she a um, sweet lady? She was all right. She's kind of, <laughs> she's kind of a crusty old bitch. I, I hope uh, she, likes, my... she, she thought I was handsome. Trust me. <laughs> I hope at my funeral, that's what, uh, that's what said about me. Like, hey, he's all right. Yeah. Yeah. I'd love to fake my own death to see what people say. Um, so next week, uh, so here, here's like another tidbit about um, both Dan and I is we, while we, you know, our, our love is of the cinema and storytelling and, and the arts, uh, we do have, um, you know, day jobs kind of slaving away and uh, offices of our own uh, home offices or office offices or both. And uh, so we're going to uh, consume too much THC next week and discuss office space and try not to have an uh, existential crisis. Yeah, get ready for our most insightful conversation yet, where you hear me go, man, like, that really, really says a lot about society, dude. Yeah. Did you ever think about that? If you think we go off, go off in some tangents now <laughs> well what i want to do just too wait. just this will be some behind the scenes i'm gonna start it sober oh, gonna okay you're gonna you're gonna get high during i see because fun fact about my uh, uh, sensitive little body is i'm very sensitive to substances that contain the chemical known as thc um so it has its effect on me very rapidly and very noticeably all right, I can't wait. So this will this will kind of be a fun psychological experiment myself, having to go back and listen to that recording. Of I think like, up, up there it is. That's when it kicked in. <laughs> I think mine will be a slow rollout. I think I'm going to do an edible uh, before <laughs> maybe 15 minutes before we start recording. Um, oh, also uh, donate to the Patreon so that we can afford Doritos. Hell yeah! Well, for concessions, I'm Jared, and I am Dan. Go drink some whiskey. Neat, not with Pepto-Bismol. <laughs>